Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. most notorious. My name is Eric Rivenis. This is the podcast that brings true-life historical tales of the worst of the worst and the heroes who bring them down. It's a great thrill for me to have as my guest Mark Lee Gardner, historian, author, and authority on the American West. And he's appeared on the History Channel, NPR, the BBC, and the American Experience on PBS. He's the author of To Hell on a Fast Horse, the untold story of Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett. And we're going to be talking about the infamous outlaw and his adversary today. I appreciate your time today, sir. Oh, here. Happy to, happy to talk to you. Most of us know something about Billy the Kid. For some, it's Emilio Estevez <laughs> in Young Guns. Uh, for me, I was absolutely spellbound as a boy by the gunfighters of the American West. And I remember reading about Billy the Kid, Pat Garrett when I was seven years old, and how Garrett waited in a dark room to ambush and kill Billy the Kid in the dead of night. And your book breaks that mythology, and I'm going to ask you about that too. But before we do that, let's talk about Billy the Kid growing up. Where did he come from? How did he develop into an outlaw? And I'm just going to call him Billy uh, to make it easier. But according to your book, he went by lots of different names and aliases. Yep. Well, you know, Billy's formative years, his birth and formative years, are some of the largest questions and unknowns that we have about Billy the Kid. I mean, he becomes famous for really the last, the very last few years of his young life. But it's those first years that we all would love to have so much more information. And I can tell you what, you know, he told other people, I mean, he told his friends and newspaper reporters on more than one occasion that he was born in New York. And the date given by his first biographer, 
And the first biographer happens to be Pat Garrett and a buddy of his, a journalist named Ash Upson. They give 1859. And there's a lot of debate, you know, was he really born in 1859? Was he really born in New York? And people have spent literally decades searching baptismal records, census records, trying to find where, you know, his real name was Henry McCarty, uh, and he had a brother, Joseph. His mother uh, was Catherine. They've been trying to find that family for decades, and nobody's really been able to find them. So we just kind of have to go with that loose information, born in New York. They do show up, his family shows up in Indianapolis uh, in the 1860s because they have him in the, in the city directory, so a really good scholar is able to find that. And there's no father at that time. It's just Catherine uh, and her two boys. And there's a lot of speculation. Well, you know, uh, there might have been a Michael uh, McCarty who uh, was a Civil War veteran who, who died at the battle or from wounds at the Battle of Chickamauga. That's kind of just speculation. It, it's possible. We don't know. But from Indianapolis, they end up uh, going to Wichita with a man that, that Catherine had met in Indianapolis, another Civil War veteran named William Antrim. And they travel together. They're a couple. They're not married at that time. They're in Wichita, and we know they're in Wichita because a good good researcher found records in the land records for Antrim and Catherine. And we also have a newspaper notice where Catherine opened a, a laundry and ran a laundry in Wichita. Uh, and then from there, they're a short time in Denver, and then they end up in New Mexico. And in 1873, I think, if I remember the year right, we have a, a marriage record for William Antrim and Catherine McCarty, and two of the witnesses are little Henry and his brother Joe. And he was kind of an incorrigible boy growing up, wasn't he? He had a really happy-go-lucky nature. Yeah, he was. I mean, after Billy became notorious, you know, some of these kids that went to school with Billy in Silver City, New Mexico, yeah, I mean, they had pleasant memories of Billy. And and apparently, yeah, he was happy-go-lucky, a nonconformist, you might say, and hard to control. And you know, single mom, you know, William Anthem was off. He was, he was looking for mineral riches, looking for silver and, and other ores. And so he wasn't around a lot. And then, you know, he loses his mother when he's a teenager. So, uh, and it's, in a way he's abandoned, both him and his brother, Joe are abandoned by their stepfather. So that's when things really start to kind of go down the wrong path for young Henry McCarty, also known as Henry Antrim and eventually the kid. So let's move to Pat Garrett, who most of us know even less about what was his background, his personality, and how did he come to get the reputation that he had and find himself on the trail of Billy? Well, and, and you know, Pat Garrett was actually the more interesting of the two. You know, the book is a dual biography, but I really, when I started out, I had the intention of doing a biography of Pat Garrett, and then that, my agent talked to me and said, oh, why don't you do Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett? And the thing is, and you've read the book, it's I realized it was a great idea because you really can't write the story of Billy without talking about Garrett, and you can't write the story of Garrett without talking about Billy. They're, they're forever linked right. um, in history and lore. But Pat Garrett has a fascinating background. He actually grows up, born in Alabama, but grows up the son of a wealthy planter, a cotton grower in Louisiana, and you know, very well-to-do, but that all comes to a crash because of the Civil War. And his father goes deep into debt. In fact, his father dies. His father, the mother dies first, then the father dies, leaves behind this family and a debt of like $30,000. And, uh, you know, Pat, upset with his uh, brother-in-law who has to sell the property, you know, for the debts, Pat goes off to Texas, and he eventually becomes a buffalo hunter. Hmm. And it's the very last waning days of the buffalo herd, so he helps finish off the bison 
in West Texas in the Panhandle. And then uh, he ends up at Fort Sumner, New Mexico, really with not a penny to his name. And he gets hired on as a cowboy or cowhand uh, for Pete Maxwell, who owns and runs the place. The, the place was purchased by his father, Lucian Maxwell, when he sold the big, famous Maxwell land grant for a ton of money. And so that's how he gets, that's how he gets located in New Mexico. He's, he essentially starts out as a poor ranch hand, cow hand at Fort Sumner. And he gets some odd jobs. You know, he, he tries to, I think he tries to become a, be a butcher for a while and runs a little kind of store saloon. But eventually he gets uh, kind of handpicked to run for sheriff of Lincoln County. But this is after Billy gets into all kinds of trouble. And he's really distinctive looking too. He's, he's far taller than most men at the time. He's lanky, and he's got a big, bushy, lawman mustache. Yes, he, he is very unusual. I mean, he's, he's six feet four inches tall in his, in his stocking feet. And when you see photographs of him with other people, he looks like a giant and very lanky. And yeah, he has that big, thick, brushy uh, mustache. But, you know, apparently there were lots of things that people recognize, qualities that he had that were very admirable. And when they need a sheriff for Lincoln County who's not afraid to go after Billy the Kid and his gang of rustlers who are causing all kinds of havoc for the cattlemen around there, they kind of handpick Pat Garrett and say, uh, we want you to run. And, and he does run and he wins the election uh, based on the promises of, yes, I will go after and I'll put a stop to the thieving and I'll, I'll corral Billy the Kid and all those other guys that are hanging out with him. And there's quite a contrast between Garrett and Billy the Kid, isn't there? both physically and personality-wise. Garrett is towering and reserved, and Billy is shorter, slight in the shoulder, and really talkative. Yeah, there is. And, you know, I think one of the things that's so appealing for a lot of people around the world for Billy the Kid was his personality. He was young, and just those phrases we've used, those those terms before, happy-go-lucky, you know, he did have those kind of buck teeth that are famous. Then you can see him in, in the only really known and, and accepted photograph of the kid. And I remember in my research, there was a, an interview with a, a, an old cowpuncher who had known Billy the Kid because he had showed up at one of their cow camps along the Pecos. And the researcher asked, well, is it true that his front teeth protruded? And the guy said, oh, yeah, they did. He said, you know, it wasn't that bad. And nobody would ever, would have ever noticed it, but he was always laughing and joshing all the time. And so because he was cutting up and smiling, then sure, you saw it. But if he wasn't doing that, you know, you wouldn't have noticed. But to me, that's, that's key. I mean, that's Billy the Kid. That's the one we love. He's always happy. He's cutting up. He's smiling and doesn't care whether he has buck teeth or not. And, you know, I've got to say, well, we have many references. He was quite the ladies' man. I mean, women were really attracted to him. And when you see that one photograph of him, you know, you kind of go, well, what, what is attractive about this guy? <laughs> um, but that personality, I mean, he was, uh, you know, kind of the 19th century babe magnet. The Lincoln County War in 1878 was a pivotal moment in Billy's life. Can you talk about this, this conflict, how it began, how Billy got involved, and how it ended? Sure. Yeah, and I'll, I'll keep it brief. It, it's, it's a very complicated things that are swirling around it that really in a way billy gets caught up in after he gets in trouble with the law he kills a man in arizona territory in a scuffle it was really self-defense but you know billy's afraid of the hangman's noose and you know things might go wrong in the the trial or and he heads off to new mexico he falls in with a gang of of cattle horse rustlers and they end up in lincoln county and uh this gang is called the boys and and billy's one of the boys until he gets caught 
with these stolen horses that belonged to a, a young Englishman named John Henry Tunstall. And this Englishman visits Billy in the jail, and they have kind of an agreement. They somehow they have an instant kind of liking for one another, and apparently Tunstall offers Billy some kind of a deal. You know, maybe you testify you know, against those guys, those rustlers, and I'll give you a job here in my ranch, and, and you can work for me. And so Billy gets out of jail, and he becomes, you know, a cowhand, an employee of John Henry Tunstall. And that's important because Tunstall is really kind of the interloper in Lincoln County. He's a merchant, and he's trying to take, take over some of the business of a firm that's known locally as The House. And that's the Murphy Dolan business, and it's eventually run by Jimmy Dolan. So you've got lots of things going on. What's, what's up for grabs are, are contracts with Fort Stanton, which buys beef. And sometimes they're stealing cows from one guy to sell to the fort, and the fort's not real careful about you know making sure that they're the actual owners. And of course, you know you can you can forge documents and all that kind of thing. So there's all kinds of things up for grabs. There's those beef contracts. There's the business with the locals. There's banking. And so John Henry Tunstall and his partner Alexander McSween, who used to be a lawyer for the house, they're the competition. And the house feels like McSween's kind of a turncoat. You know, he worked for them and learned all their business practices, and now he's helping the competition. And the competition is also supported by another cattleman named John Chisholm, who's tired of his cattle getting stolen by the house or their, their lackeys or uh, rustlers. Right. So this just keeps building this feud until eventually John Henry Tunstall is murdered. And this sets off what becomes known as the Lincoln County War. And this murder is pretty cold-blooded. Tunstall isn't able to defend himself at all. No, he's not. He, he really, from the accounts, he really doesn't even know what's going on. They're trying to bring a, a herd of horses back to Lincoln and a posse that's out looking for Tunstall and, and for the horses because there's this lawsuit going on over an insurance policy and they attach all of Tunstall's property. And so this posse is going after Tunstall and the property, but they're really out to cause no good. And this posse, they ride up on Tunstall and his men. Billy's one of the men that's with the horses. And some of them are kind of away because I guess they scattered a flock of turkeys and some of them left to go after these turkeys. Well, Tunstall and a handful of men are there with this herd, and all of a sudden the posse comes riding over the hill. The men under Tunstall realize right away what's going on. They go racing off, but Tunstall's confused, and he stays behind. And they essentially ride right up to him and shoot him dead in cold blood. And then to make it even worse, they kind of pose the body. You know, they, they put, like, Tunstall's hat under the... They kill the horse put Tunstall's hat under the horse's head to make it look like, they, like the horse is asleep, and then they lay Tunstall right next to him, put a blanket over him, and it's really kind of sick, actually, and very mean and, and, and cold. And, uh, and, of course, you know, later when Tunstall's body is brought back to Lincoln, Billy is there in the room, and he mentions, he says, I'm going to get some of them before, I, before I'm gone. You know, before this is done, I'm going to get some of them. And, you know, he does get some of them, as well as some of the other employees of McSween and Tunstall. And Tunstall must have made quite an impression on Billy because Billy was focused on avenging him for a long time. They'd only known each other for about three months. Um, and, you know, when you watch the movies, you know, Tunstall's always this kind of like fatherly figure to, to young Billy and takes him under his wing. And, and, you know, they were only six years difference in age. You know, when Tunstall's killed, he's 24 and Billy's 18. But on the other hand, there was something there... And, and I think I refer to it in the book, but, you know, Tunstall treated Billy different than a lot of other people did. You know, to most other people, you know, Billy was kind of this ragmuffin, you know, thug to some. But Tunstall treated him like an equal, you know, and did not kind of look down, didn't look down on him at all. And that was different 
for Billy the Kid. He'd never had that feeling before. And so, yeah, when, when this one guy that, that came to, you know, that supported him and that treated him like a friend when he's killed, then yes, you know, Billy's angry and he's definitely out for revenge. And once Tunstall is murdered, Billy falls in with Dick Brewer and they form a group called the Regulators. Yes, that's correct. And actually, that it's a legal it's a legal organization because Brewer is appointed the head of this by the Justice of the Peace, which, according to the territorial laws, was you know that's all that's something you can do. You can appoint a constable or temporary deputy or what have you. And in his position, then he was allowed to then deputize other individuals and forms his own posse. So the regulators, they are set to go after the killers of Tunstall. Every man that was in that posse that went after Tunstall, they want to hunt down and supposedly bring to justice, although that didn't happen to any of them. So it's legal at first, but then as this war, they call it a war, it's really a feud, as it keeps getting larger and more people are killed, the New Mexico governor essentially revokes the Justice of the Peace's you know, official certification and then that kind of nullifies anything that he's done. So then the regulators, from being a legal posse, they essentially become outlaws as long as they're continuing to hunt down these uh, these people that killed Tunstall. Now, what happens is, everybody knows, and this is what makes the Lincoln County War really tragic and very confusing, the people that are the regulators that are after the killers of their boss, John Henry Tunstall, they know that really if they capture a killer and bring him into Lincoln, that he's probably going to get turned loose because the sheriff of Lincoln County is on the side of the house. He's not for justice, but he's working for the house. So they realize that, you know, Billy does, the only justice that they're really going to have is if we get these guys and if we kill them because they're just going to get turned loose because the system is corrupt. So they kind of basically are taking the law into their own hands. And the regulators make a bold move. They go into town, take over a couple of buildings, and then decide to wait for their enemies to come to them. Yeah, so what happens is Alexander McSween, who's, you know, after Tunstall's killed, Alexander McSween, who is his partner, becomes the leader of really this opposition force with Billy the Kid and, and several others. He, in a, in a very strong moment uh, where he feels that, you know, with the politics that are going on at the time, that he can go into Lincoln and, and reclaim his property and his status, and, and he has his gun force with him, and he's kind of making a stand there. And, yeah, so they go in in a bold move. The tables turn when uh, the Dolan, the House faction, you know, he has his men in town, but he enlists the support of the local military at Fort Stanton. And that turns the tables completely because they've got things like Gatling guns, <laughs> you yeah. know, howitzers, and they actually bring some of their artillery into town and surround them, and that's really the doom uh, for the, the McSween and the opposition. And eventually there's this episode which is known as the Big Killing, and Alexander McSween is killed, some other regulators um, are wounded, some killed, and Billy has his daring escape uh, along with a few cohorts and are able to get away. And Billy is essentially at that point on his own and uh, kind of, has to find his own means of surviving there in New Mexico, and if he has to rustle a cow or a horse or whatever, uh, that's some of the stuff that he's involved in. So Billy goes on the run and becomes a wanted man. Could you talk about how Pat Garrett gets involved at that point? Sure. Well, and I should, we should back up just a little bit. You know, one of the reasons that Billy is on the run is that during this Lincoln County War, they ambush the sheriff, you know, their enemy, Sheriff Brady and his deputies. And Sheriff Brady is killed along with one of the deputies. 
And this this puts the regulators in disfavor, you know, where they might have had some sympathy before. You know, when you kill the county sheriff, the lawman, even if he's corrupt, that's not good. And so a lot of the people in the, in the territory are incensed. And, and this is what brings attention from Washington. And eventually a new governor is appointed as Lou Wallace. And we can talk about him in a minute. But so when, when Billy finally, you know, leaves Lincoln after his boss, McSween, has been killed, he does have this indictment against him for murdering uh, a lawman and the deputy. And that's what brings about finally, after being on the run and turning to cattle rustling and other things, they approach Pat Garrett and Joseph Lee, who's one of the founders of Roswell, New Mexico, and a huge cattleman landowner. He uh, sees those qualities in Garrett, some honorable qualities, and, and he's young, impressive, formidable looking, tall. And he convinces Garrett to run for sheriff of Lincoln County because they want to put a stop to the, you know, this rustling that's really hurting or impacting their herds. And Garrett is elected on the promise that he would stop Billy the Kid and his gang. You mentioned the murder of Sheriff Brady, and that was pretty much an ambush. Billy and a couple of his regulator friends hid behind a wall, waited for the sheriff and his deputy to come walking down the street and build them with bullets. Yes. Now, I mean, and you know, it's interesting because... And we and I've talked about you know feud versus war and you know there was one writer years ago and he said well you know in in war in true war an ambush is an accepted means of fighting so if this is the Lincoln County War to ambush and assassinate the sheriff that maybe if you look at it in those those terms of that light is acceptable but still something that the citizens in the territory you know their sheriff has been killed doesn't matter if it was justified or if it's a war or whatever he's he represents law and order, and they killed him. So, uh, you know, it proved, I think, for people like Billy and other regulators what they were willing to resort to to survive. They felt like, you know, they were going to get the sheriff that killed their friend and their boss, and and doesn't matter whether he's a sheriff or not, he's a murderer because he was in charge of that posse. Let's talk about Billy and Governor Lou Wallace, who have a really interesting relationship throughout the book. Could you explain the nature of that relationship? Well, you know, it's, what happens is, in Washington, you know, this lawlessness and this these killings in Lincoln County get the attention there. And the governor and the governors that of the territory, they're appointed. And so Governor Axtell, who was in charge during the part of the Lincoln County War, he's removed. And they put another man there. And, you know, his mission is put a stop to this because this is getting out of hand. People are getting killed. It doesn't look good. So that's Governor Lou Wallace, and he's from Indiana, and uh, and you know Billy lived in Indiana for a short time, and they'll talk about that when they have their meeting. But what happens is, is that in in order to kind of stop everything, Wallace offers an amnesty. He says anybody involved in the Lincoln County War, I'm going to give you the opportunity for amnesty, uh, except for those that currently have an indictment against them. Well, Billy has an indictment, so the amnesty doesn't work for him. He's still wanted for murder. And what he does is, is he contacts the governor and says, you know, I'm willing to help you identify some of these people that you're looking for, some of these murderers, but I've got this indictment against me. So what can we do? What can we work out? And they set up a meeting. And the, the whole purpose of this, uh, Billy witnessed another murder in Lincoln, and it was kind of during a, they, they, there was a truce that they were trying to organize between the fighters for Jimmy Dolan, the House, and some of the regulators. And they made an agreement that, okay, we're going to stop shooting at each other, but also, you know, under penalty of death, we will not testify against any of us. We refuse to do that. But Billy had witnessed Jimmy Dolan and others murder this lawyer named Houston in the streets of Lincoln. And so he's willing to testify 
for Governor Wallace if he can get his pardon. And and Billy does that. He testifies actually in two different situations. He testifies before the grand jury, but there's also a court of inquiry against the uh, commander of the Fort Stanton Post for what he was doing involved in, and he testifies there as well. And so Billy is risking his life to testify against these people that said, well, anybody that goes to trial and testifies against us, we're going to kill. So he risks his life to fulfill his part of the bargain. And later, when Billy's in real trouble, as you find in the book, Governor Wallace doesn't fulfill his end of the bargain. And Wallace also thinks Billy is waving this letter around, this agreement as a free pass against any future crimes he might commit. That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. What what happens is, and I and, and actually I discovered this interview with Wallace uh, shortly after the book was published. But you know, Wallace kind of clarified what the agreement was. He said, you know, you have to testify and change your ways. And Billy really didn't change his ways, so that when he's finally caught by Pat Garrett, you know, as a cattle rustler, and he still has this indictment for the murder of the sheriff, Wallace doesn't feel like I need to come in and step in here. And I think there's other things going on. You know, I don't think Wallace wanted to be the guy that pardoned this murderer. Because if you look at it, you know, just the facts, Billy the Kid murdered this sheriff along with some others and a deputy. And I don't think he wanted to be known as the man who pardoned somebody that had such a horrible record. Even as sympathetically, and I'm very sympathetic towards the kid, because it turns out he's the only one prosecuted for the killing of the sheriff. None of the other guys are ever brought to court. It's only Billy. But still, you know, Wallace doesn't feel like he needs to honor his agreement. He thinks that Billy has broken the agreement. And Governor Wallace was actually the author of the novel Ben-Hur, and looking forward to its release around this time, too. I think he's looking forward to being out of New Mexico, yes. I think, and, and, you know, and the other thing about the kid is that as long as Billy was on the loose, he was an embarrassment to Wallace because Wallace had been sent there to put, put a stop to the criminal activity and the violence. And as long as you've got some guy out there running named Billy the Kid who has a gang, and we can argue about whether he was in charge of the gang or not because we really don't know, but um, that's embarrassing to Wallace. And so he's ecstatic when Pat Garrett captures him and that he's, he goes to trial. And, and now Wallace does, you know, he does send, you know, an attorney uh, to, to consult with Billy. So, you know, he does try to help a little bit, but he doesn't go to any extremes to help out the kid. But, but as far as he's concerned, you know, the kid didn't change his ways and he feels like, hey, you know, you kind of deserve what you got. But Billy does have a, a very strong case for, I did everything you asked me to do, but what did you do on your end? So, Back after a word from our sponsors. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Reva Steed's The Audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned to the interview. So Garrett goes after Billy, who's on the run with a new gang in December of 1880, and tracks him to a stone house in a place called Stinking Springs. And I wish we had time for every story, but I'll I'll summarize this one. Garrett and his posse surround the house and basically starve Billy and his gang out, killing one of the gang members who they shoot in front of the door. And the gang tries to actually reel their horses in from outside because they're going to attempt to flee. But Garrett shoots one of the horses and it blocks the only door, which prevents Billy from getting on his own bay, already in the house and making a run for it. And finally, without water and food and freezing cold, they realize it's futile and they give up. So Garrett takes personal responsibility for guarding Billy. But part of the problem is the lack of any decent jails in the region. And Billy the Kid happens to be a master escape artist, having broken out of jail more than once. Tell us about the story, if you if you would, of Billy's jail stay in Lincoln while he's waiting execution. Yeah, well, you know, what happens is, of course, the reason he's in jail in Lincoln is that, you know, Billy is eventually taken to trial. He's, the trial is in Mesilla, New Mexico, which is in southern New Mexico, and he is convicted of that murder, the killing of Sheriff Brady. And so, yes, you're correct. He's then taken to Lincoln under Garrett's charge because the crime occurred in Lincoln County. And so it's up to the sheriff of Lincoln County to perform the execution, you know, build the scaffold and all that stuff. So, but you're absolutely correct because the courthouse was formerly a store building. It's this two-story adobe 
building, and it was built by the house, you know, ironically enough, but it was never built as a jail. It, you know, it was built as a mercantile operation, and so they kind of have to convert it somewhat into a jail, and it's really, and even, even what they're doing is, is very subpar. You know, Billy is kept in a room separate from the other prisoners that they have, and apparently you have to go, you know, at that time, in order to get, to get out of that room, you have to go to the office of Pat Garrett, and then there's a hallway, and you go downstairs. But anyway, he's kept under guard and, and all this stuff, but it's not very secure. And then Pat Garrett has to leave Lincoln, and there's a couple of stories, you know, why does Pat Garrett leave at this time? Well, one is is that he's he had to order the lumber to build the scaffold, but also the county sheriff is in charge of collecting taxes. And Lincoln County is, is the largest county in the United States at that time. It's almost all of southeastern New Mexico. So he's over at White Oaks. So whether he's collecting taxes or getting wood or whatever, he's gone. Well, this is the opportunity that Billy is looking for. And, you know, one of the things about the kid is that, you know, as you, as you mentioned before, he's like five foot eight. He's not very big. And people always tended to underestimate him. He was really very sharp, very smart, and very calculating. And he knows that his life is in jeopardy. He's to be executed. So he's going to do whatever he can to get out of there. So when Pat Garrett's gone, there's one less gun that's in charge of him. There's two deputies under Garrett. And, and Garrett did warn his deputies that, you know, this guy's tricky. He's slippery, so don't let your guard down. But again, they underestimated him, and, and you know, Billy was part of that. He kind of fooled him uh, as well. And one of the deputies had been a real bully. His name was Bob Ollinger, and it made life very difficult for the kid. Well, he had to take the other prisoners across the street to get their meals. I mean, they didn't even, have, they didn't even cook their meals in the building. Right. So they went to this restaurant. So Bob Ollinger's gone. Well, at that time, Billy says, I need to go to the outhouse, which is out back. And uh, the other thing that they screwed up or slipped up on was that his cuffs didn't fit very well. And also, uh, apparently, a lot of the time, they didn't even keep him handcuffed. They had both cuffs on one wrist so that he could eat and also so you could visit the outhouse. So James Bell, the other deputy, they were amiable to each other. Uh, they weren't friends, but they got along. And on the way back up the stairs from the outhouse, Billy swiftly turns around, clonks Bell over the head with the cuffs, stuns him. They struggle for the gun. Billy gets Bell's gun. Bell races down the stairs. Billy shoots two or three times, but one of them is fatal. Bell goes bounding out, just rushing out on adrenaline, and falls on the ground. He's dead. Billy rushes down the hallway to where the armory is, where a lot of the guns of these outlaws and others are stored, and he gets the rifles and pistols. And then, of course, Bob Ollinger, he hears the gunshots, and Billy knows he's going to be coming, so he goes to the window of where Billy had been kept, which overlooks the street, and Bob Ollinger, caution to the wind, is rushing to this sound. And just as he gets under the window, Billy says, hello, Bob. And Ollinger looks up, and Billy uses Ollinger's own shotgun, two barrels, and blasts him and kills him instantly. So the two deputies left in charge of the kid are both killed with their own guns. And after Billy is out, he kind of takes his time. After managing to remove his cuffs, he, he dances around in celebration spend some time chatting with some of the townspeople. And with Garrett gone and both of his deputies dead, there really isn't any giant hurry for him to skedaddle. Right. Yes, I mean, he keeps the local citizens at bay. There, there were, we have accounts that were like two different people that kind of thought about doing something. Sure. And, I, and the one that always got me was the one guy that started to grab his gun. His wife grabbed him and said, you're not going to be doing that because you're crazy. <laughs> But also, I think there was sympathy in Lincoln. I mean, that, that's the, I think that's the very fascinating part of the story, is that there were people that liked Billy, 
and that we're sympathetic to him. So two reasons for not trying to stop Billy yourself. One is is that you're afraid of him, which was a very good reason. And the other is is that you don't mind if he gets away because you think maybe he's been treated unjustly or unfairly. So he keeps the townspeople at bay. He's on the balcony. He has to get his leg irons off so he can straddle a horse. Finally, he gets one of the guys that is employed by the county to get him some tools, and he breaks that apart. He orders somebody to get him a horse. And he rides out of town. Nobody fires a shot at him. He's unmolested. And Pat Garrett arrives a day later to find blood and brains and everything else on the courthouse and outside and complete mayhem. So now Billy is on the lam again, and you really give readers a good idea in your book about Garrett's investigative methods, his supreme ability to be patient, despite all of the pressure to go after Billy the Kid and catch him immediately. He wants... Billy to feel comfortable and even invincible and then taken by surprise. And his strategy works for him when he finally catches up with Billy for the second time. That's absolutely right. I mean, this was heinous. He killed these two men, the two deputies in their own guns, you know, already being convicted of murdering, you know, a sheriff and being involved in the murder of that sheriff's deputy. This is just completely over the top. And so Everybody is crying, screaming, he has to be caught, he has to be captured. And I think, you know, for people that live in Santa Fe or Albuquerque or Las Vegas, they're also scared. I mean, there's this killer out here on the loose, and he's killed a bunch of lawmen, and nobody can seem to catch him. And so Pat Garrett, of course, feels great remorse because he felt like he didn't do his job and that he should have done a better job of keeping Billy guarded. These two deaths are his fault, in a way. But yeah, so he's got all this pressure on him, and uh, he's got this, this killer that's out on the loose. He, he already caught him once. Now he has to catch him again. The first time was hard enough. And now, you know, Billy the Kid was, as far as Pat's concerned, I mean, he, he might go to Mexico or something. You know, why would he stick around here? He gets rumors that Billy the Kid has remained in the territory. So Garrett feels like, I can't confirm these right now, but maybe the best thing to do, let Billy get comfortable. Let him think that he's okay or safe, because that's the opportunity when I'll be able to slip in and get him. If I go after him on the trail right now, and he did send some men out on the trail to try to get him initially, but uh, Billy's just going to keep running. Let him feel safe. Let him feel like he's in his comfort area, and then that's when you strike. And <laughs> Billy should have hightailed it out of New Mexico at that point, but he doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't, and that's always the big question, you know. Why, why did Billy not go? Because you know, some of the regulators did leave. I mean, they, they, didn't, they didn't go to Mexico but they just lit out and went to other places, you know, whether it's Kansas or Texas or whatever. It wasn't safe for him. So Billy could have done the same thing. So all we can do is speculate. We do know that Billy had lots of sweethearts, and a big sweetheart that he had was a, a woman named Paulita Maxwell, and she was the sister of Pete, and she lived at Fort Sumner. And apparently she was the only woman that sent a letter to Billy while he was in jail in Messia. So we know they had a relationship, but he also had other relationships to women in the Fort Sumner area. Those are documented. And he had lots of friends there, especially among the Hispanic population. They, they were very affectionate towards Billy. So I think that he had a motivation to go to Fort Sumner, but he also felt very secure there because there were people that weren't going to talk about him and that would help protect him and would give him shelter. And I think Fort Sumner had become home for him in a way. So the smart thing would have do, you're absolutely right, would have been to leave the territory, but Billy doesn't do that. He goes to Fort Sumner, and finally Pat Garrett starts getting stronger information that Billy the Kid is there. He gets letters from a, a local man, Manuel Brazel, who he had worked with before in capturing the kid, and he said, I think Billy's in the area. And then his, one of his deputies, John Poe, had learned from a, a man in, in White Oaks 
who had been to Fort Sumner and said Billy the Kid is there. And so finally, with this evidence, and it's been a, a good amount of time, Pat Garrett decides to go check it out himself. But he's very careful. He doesn't tell anybody where he's going. He takes another deputy, but he doesn't even tell him until they get far out of Lincoln what they're doing or who they're going after. And they travel at night, not during the day, and they don't stop at any populous places. Uh, the whole idea is, is that you know Billy's got lots of friends, and uh, he doesn't want to give any advance warning because... If there's any advance warning, chances are there'll be another dead Lincoln County Sheriff. Yeah. So Garrett and Poe make their way to Pete Maxwell's house in Fort Sumner on a solid tip that Billy is living in the area. Yes. Yeah, eventually, I mean, there's other things that happen uh, in between, but the the night of July 14th, he does make his way into Fort Sumner. Uh, They decide that, you know, I want to talk to Pete Maxwell because if anybody's going to know if Billy's in the area... It's going to be Pete Maxwell. And Pat Garrett has known Pete Maxwell. That was his first boss. And so they go to the house. It's about midnight or shortly before. Garrett leaves two deputies on the outside. And Pat Garrett goes inside, talks to Pete Maxwell. In fact, he wakes him up. And he's sitting on the side of the bed. He's asking him, you know, is Billy the kid here? And, and Pete Maxwell is very hesitant because he's afraid of Billy also. It's not because he's protecting his sister. He's just scared. And he, and he admits that Billy has been here. And that's when Billy shows up. And then the infamous event. Uh, But again, it doesn't happen the way most of us have heard the story. Garrett wasn't actually hiding in some dark corner, lying in wait for the kid, was he? No. What happens is is that, um, you know, Billy has been staying in Fort Sumner. He's at another house, and he gets in, and he's hungry. And apparently there's a little bit of meat, and he asks this woman, uh, Celsa Gutierrez, who is uh, actually, she's very interesting, she's sister-in-law, Pat Garrett, but he asked her to cook up this meat, and she said, this is no good, this is a little bit of scrap, go over to Pete Maxwell's place. They just butchered a beef, and they got a side of beef hanging over there. So he goes, he has his pistol stuck in his pants pocket, he's got a butcher knife, and he heads over to Pete Maxwell's house. Well, when he gets close, you know, the deputies are outside. John Poe sees this scruffy-looking guy in his socking feet walking towards the house. He thinks he's one of the ranch hands. He's never seen Billy the Kid before. And so as he's approaching, he comes up, and Billy spots these two deputies, and he's startled. He jumps back, and he goes, Key and S, you know, who is it? And John Poe, just, again, thinking it's an innocent ranch hand or what have you, he says, oh, don't be afraid. We're not going to harm you, friend. And Billy keeps backing up, and he goes through the gate and gets up on the porch, and he keeps saying Key and S, and he essentially kind of backs into the room. He has an outside-facing door. He backs in, and as soon as he steps in the room, he turns, and he says to Pete, Key and S, who are, who are these guys? Because you know, Billy's a very cautious sort, he should be. It's late, why are these two guys hanging out and they've got guns? And then Billy all of a sudden sees his other form sitting on the bed, and he jumps back. He and Ash, you know, who is it? And Pete Maxwell whispers to Garrett, that's him. And, of course, Garrett recognizes the voice really at the same time, and Garrett quickly pulls his revolver. Billy already has his gun leveled, but at that moment, Billy doesn't know who that guy is next to Pete Maxwell, so he doesn't want to shoot anybody that's friendly. He doesn't want to shoot Pete Maxwell, so Billy hesitates. Garrett doesn't hesitate. He's got no other target but that kid near the doorway. So Garrett fires once, and, you know, it's dark, although there's moonlight. Billy falls to the ground. As Billy's falling, Garrett fires a second time, and then Garrett rushes out of the room. Pete Maxwell shortly follows, and as Garrett comes out of the room, John Poe is still standing there kind of dumbfounded. as like, what's happened? He hears these gunshots, and as Garrett comes out the door, he says, I think I got him. You know, I think I shot Billy the Kid. And then John Poe says, oh, no, you know, I couldn't have been Billy the Kid. Garrett says, oh, no, that was him. I recognized his voice. And so that's how Billy the Kid meets his end. Now, once Billy is dead, Pat Garrett suddenly becomes the toast of the country, 
right? Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's celebrated. I mean, except for those people that love Billy, they hated him. Uh, and that included a lot of people around Fort Sumner. But yes, uh, in the territory and the nation, he is a celebrated figure. And not only is he celebrated, he is so celebrated that in several towns, they start putting together a pot of money to give to him in appreciation. You know, he's already going to get a reward for capturing the kid, which he captured him by killing him. But they want to give him more money because they're so ecstatic that this killer has finally met his end, this terror of the territory. From that point on, Garrett gets lots of opportunities, but he blows them. He has problems with money, with gambling. He moves his family around a lot. Tracking down criminals seemed to be the one thing he was always consistently good at. But in adapting to civilian life, he really struggles to settle down. And he kind of gets bored easily, doesn't he? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, and this is, this is just speculation on my part, but I've always wondered, was he trying to reobtain that status and wealth he had known as a young man on that Louisiana plantation, you know? So I always wondered if that really tragic loss that he suffered with the Civil War and his parents' death, if he wasn't trying to get that back. So you know, it's hard to do that on the salary of a, of a county sheriff. And so he's speculating and, you know, in land deals, mining deals, and trying to obtain wealth and important positions and that kind of thing. But you're absolutely right. He was one of the best lawmen ever. And when he was on the trail, you know, he didn't give up. And he generally always got his man. And uh, if he had remained and been satisfied with just being a lawman, I don't think we would have had the tragic end to Pat Garrett, but he was striving for something more. He had a large family, and unfortunately for him, a lot of his investments, some of them were get-rich-quick schemes, and he got cut out of some deals that he shouldn't have got cut out. He had a lot of misfortune, and he was a gambler. He was kind of addicted to gambling, and whether it was horse racing or cards, and that doesn't help you when you're trying to invest if you're uh, losing some money through your uh, gambling. So we don't have much time left to, f- to follow the last few years of Garrett's life. But if you wouldn't mind, tell us about the very end for Garrett and talk about the incident that led him to his death. Yeah, well, it's one of the controversial, Billy the Kid's death's controversial, and so is Pat Garrett's. He's shot in the back of the head. The story that was passed on at the time, and that really no one believes now, was that there was this dispute because uh, he'd leased some land out to a man named Wayne Brazel, and he thought the guy was going to graze cattle, but instead he has a big herd of goats, like 1,500 or 1,200 goats, which is going to ruin his range. And Pat Garrett wants him off. Now, that was true. He did want him off the land. But really what happens is, as they're riding to Las Cruces, supposedly there was this argument, and Pat Garrett starts to draw his gun on Wayne Brazel, and Wayne Brazel was faster and kills him. What most people believe is that this killing had been planned in advance. It was really an assassination. There were many people worried about Garrett. He had kind of been getting mean, and uh, this dispute over the land had gotten really very bitter. And there's one family that was on the other side said, we we were just afraid any day Pat Garrett was going to kill somebody. And so they decided to kill him first. Now, back in 2010, Billy the Kid made headlines once more, 120 years after his death. And you were involved in the controversy as a national expert on Billy the Kid. Yes, Governor Richardson was going to be leaving office, and he was always fascinated by Billy the Kid. And, of course, he was, you know, as the governor of New Mexico, he's one of the biggest tourist draws is Billy the Kid. And so he saw any kind of controversy or any kind of thing that involved Billy as being good for New Mexico tourism. And so he decided that before he left office, he wanted to revisit this pardon that was promised by Lou Wallace 
and see if he could give Billy a posthumous pardon. And it was very controversial when it came out. I thought it was a lot of fun. I thought that, well, sure, you know, Billy, I felt that, you know, yeah, go ahead and give him the posthumous pardon. I mean, those they really don't mean anything anyway, because some of the critics said, well, you're changing history. Well, you're not really changing history. Billy the Kid is still dead, you know. <laughs> he didn't get his pardon. But on the other hand, it's kind of a symbolic thing, and Wallace did indeed promise him a pardon, and Billy did do the things that Wallace asked him to do. So I said, why not? Yeah, give him the posthumous pardon. Well, in the end, you know, Richardson, just like Governor Lou Wallace, did not want to be known as the man that pardoned Billy the Kid. And so uh, I thought what was fascinating was that it did get so much media attention. And in fact, Richardson announced his decision on Good Morning America Live. <laughs> so it was, I mean, it really got a lot of uh, attention in the press. And you know, Billy had a lot of fans and supporters, but in the end, he didn't get his pardon. So I guess it's out there for some future governor to consider uh, whether or not he's going to give that to him or she's going to give that to him. I also wanted to ask you, and for those of my listeners who aren't aware uh, just a few months ago, a photograph emerged with the purported image of Billy the Kid in the middle of a game of croquet. <laughs> Can you comment on that photo? I mean, it was a pretty big deal in the press. Do you do you think it's authentic? Yeah, I don't think it's authentic. It's a fun story, but you know, I'll tell you how a lot of this started. Just a few years ago, there's one known image of Billy the Kid that's accepted that has solid provenance, and uh, it was a tintype taking at Fort Sumner, and it's the famous one where he's standing there, he's got a Winchester in one hand, and you can see his Colt revolver in its holster, he's wearing a sweater and, and kind of a goofy-looking hat, uh, and it's not a great photo. Apparently, Billy had one picture taken, and it was an awful picture. Um, he wasn't very photogenic, but it doesn't match his personality and the descriptions that we have uh, of the kids, so it's, it's just kind of weird that you know the one photo that we have apparently is not a great photo or, you know, or a really bad photo. But regardless, that sold a few years ago to uh, a billionaire named Bill Koch, and he paid $2.3 million for that image. So what happens is people start looking at antique shops and in their closets, attics, and they see a tintype. Wow, that looks like Billy the Kid. And this could be worth a lot of money. It's an unknown photo. So there's been a, a whole slew of photos that have been put forward because people, it's just like people that watch Antiques Roadshow and they find out that this Gibson mandolin is worth $20,000. Well, man, I got an old mandolin back here. Maybe it's worth, you know, so that's the kind of thing that was going on. So in the last two years, there have been three images that have, quote, been authenticated by these forensic specialists. And I don't consider any, any one of them to be the actual Billy the Kid. And it's not that I, I, w I would love to see a, a, another photograph of Billy the Kid, and I think there's a good chance it probably was another image taken of him, especially as a very young man, you know, because it's very common, you know, the mother, whether you're in Wichita or Denver, you take your kids in and, and have a portrait made. I think there's something out there floating around. We may never know because it may be unwritten on or unidentified, but I would love to see another photo, an authentic one of the kid, but I don't believe any of these that have surfaced in the last two years are of the kid. And the one you're talking about, the croquet image, in fact, it's called the croquet kid image. It's a bunch of people standing out in front of this frame building and it's supposed to be Billy the Kid and they, they claim that there's several individuals that are regulators that are with them and they say that Paulita Maxwell's in the image, Sally Chisholm is in the image, and I don't think it looks like, really, I can see the resemblances, but it, I don't think it looks like any of them. And the problem that they have, the ones that have been researching it, is that they did take it and had this forensic analysis done, and they believe that that analysis is irrefutable. So if it's irrefutable to them, and, it, and, it, and all these people are identified, they had to figure out, okay, when was the time when these people were together, 
and where could they have been together? Oh, sure. And they, yeah, and they found a place they think is, you know, where it was taken, but the terrain doesn't match up, you know, and it kind of got to be a little comical because in the, in the tintype, there are no leaves in the trees, but this meeting was supposedly took place in August or September, and then they said, well, in times of drought, you know, would have lost their leaves. Well, maybe. I mean, there's the site today doesn't have a bunch of white oaks on it like in the tintype. Well, there was this town 60 miles away named White Oaks, so there could have been White Oaks then. Okay, maybe. Well, then there's these mountains in the background that aren't there today. Well, those are actually clouds. So, so it just <laughs> keeps getting. I mean, it just keeps getting kind of more comical and more comical. But I'm convinced it's not where they say it is. It, it doesn't look like the same place. The terrain doesn't match up. The resemblances aren't strong enough. And, you know, with that forensic analysis, I just trust my eye over a computer. I just don't think the computer's got it. So anyway, as far as I'm concerned, we don't, you know, we still have just that one definitely authentic image of the kid. And until we have a really strong providence, and this thing, you know, chain of ownership, that's, that's key with this croquet kid image. There's no chain of ownership. I mean, it, it turned up you know, in Sacramento, it's not like it was passed down in this family, uh, you know, and, and we have good documentation for how it got there. So it just really lacks any kind of solid provenance. And that combined with the fact that it's not the same place that they think it is, it can't be the same time, it just got too much against it. So in my opinion, it's not the kid. Well, I appreciate your time tremendously today. Sure, it was a lot of fun. You know, it, it's kind of, Billy the Kid is almost ancient history to me because that book came out in 2010, and you know I've written two books since then, one on the Northfield Raid, and then I have a book coming out on May on Theodore Roosevelt and the Rough Riders. So uh, Billy the Kid seems like uh, pretty distant, <laughs> considering all the other stuff I've been doing. And it's a great book. Highly recommended. Well, thanks. And you can find more about Mark Lee Gardner's work at his website, songofthewest.com. Now, Mark Lee Gardner is not only an author, but he's a musician, too. He took the 1921 poem written by Phil Lenore called The Finger of Billy the Kid and set it to his own music. According to Mark, a Las Vegas newspaper reported that they had one of the fingers of Billy the Kid displayed in their offices. This is not long after his death, by the way. Now, the story created such a stir that Pat Garrett himself traveled back to Fort Sumner where Billy is buried to make sure that the body hadn't been disturbed. And as it turns out, the whole thing was a giant hoax. So here now is The Finger of Billy the Kid, performed by Mark Lee Gardner. And if you like the song and you want to go to iTunes, it's available there. Oh, that finger of Billy the Kid What a heap of harm it did But when Billy died died too and was buried beneath the morning dew no more to pull his six gun true the finger of billy the kid but one day up chicago way i hear the sideshow feller say just step this way and for a dime you'll see the trigger finger of Kid Billy What is pulled a hundred massacres The finger of Billy the Kid Well I knew that feller he lied like a snake And that his finger was a fake But I paid my dime to see the show For I was a friend of Billy's I'll have you know He did me a favor in New Mexico the 
outlaw Billy the Kid. I followed the crowd into the hall, saw the finger preserved in alcohol. Then I pulled my gun so none could tell, and I blowed that thing clar into hell, and gave a yip and a mighty yell, hurrah for Billy the Kid. Of course they threw me into jail, from where a letter I didn't mail to Sheriff Pat Garrett who killed the kid And I told him what I'd gone and did And to tell me quick if he got rid of the finger of Billy the Kid Well old Pat came back quick and hot And in a few words he said a lot The trigger finger of young Billy is still upon his dead body I know because I dug to see the finger of Billy the Kid If Billy can hear from his doby shack I reckon he knows I paid him back For the favor he did me when my voice was stilled By thirst and hunger and my body he filled With buffalo meat that had been killed By the finger of Billy the Kid This is the most notorious podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenus. Ladies and gentlemen, good day. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.